The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're listening to our most recent live online journal club, which took place a couple days ago. The topic of the journal club was interpretation of non-invasive prenatal testing after IVF with BGT. Let's listen in. Hello, everybody. Welcome to EVRMA's fifth Live Online Journal Club. For those of you who have been at our previous events, welcome back. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We hope you you enjoy this journal club. Let's get started. In today's journal club, we're going to be discussing non-invasive prenatal testing for patients who've undergone IVF with PGTA. First, we're going to have an introduction by Lee Shulman and by Marie Werner followed by the presentation of a really interesting publication by Amber Klimchak. After her presentation, we're gonna move on to discussion involving all of our panelists. And as always, we're gonna be taking questions from the audience. So please send them in through the little Q&A button at the bottom of your screen and we'll just address them during the, during the discussion at the end. As we do with all of our journal clubs, this one is gonna be available as a FertiliPod podcast episode as well. And the video is also gonna be available on our website at ev-rmainnovation.com. Our first speaker is Dr. Schulman, who's professor of clinical genetics in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University. He is an expert in prenatal diagnosis and he conducts basic and clinical research in this field. We asked him to make an introduction summarizing the evolution of prenatal testing leading up to the development and utilization of uh, NIPT. Dr. Schulman, whenever you're ready. First of all, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, you know, this uh, invitation came at a, a somewhat auspicious time because we were actually having, in a sense, uh, this same discussion amongst us, uh, meaning uh, we probably see somewhere in the range of anywhere from five to 10 women every week who have had pre-implantation genetic testing, uh, whether it would be PGTA or M, invariably all the w- women who have had PGTM also have PGTA. And the question is, are, are we doing these women any service? So uh, I think it's important. I think most of us on, on this for this journal club understand this, but it is th- this particular issue of screening versus diagnosis is, is one that is not just fraught with issues, but I think it's uh, in a sense the source of confusion or misperception about one, what NIPT does and what it does not do. It's a screening test. Inherently, it's a risk adjustment process. I like to say to, to, to patients as well as to colleagues that when you've had an NIPT test, that test is never normal or abnormal. It's positive or negative. It denotes an increased risk for a somewhat limited number of problems or a decreased risk, but it's never 
a, a normal or abnormal result, which is what we get with a diagnostic test, with a tissue diagnosis, chorionic villus sampling, um, uh, amniocentesis, and, and for, for the means of the discussion today, uh, an embryonic biopsy. Uh, clearly a more comprehensive uh, assessment, and it allows us, again, to talk about normal and abnormal results. So again, the basis for NIPT, this was the work that Dennis Lowe did in the early 1990s. Uh, it turns out that uh, pregnant women have up to 10% of their circulating non-cellular uh, nucleic acid to be fetal in origin. And that's obviously an approximate number. Uh, most likely, most, I won't say all, but the vast majority of that circulating fetal nucleic acid is, front, is trophoblastic cells. It's from the placenta. Uh, it goes through a, a rather interesting life cycle. The, the cells themselves are rather short-lived. Uh, they are mostly destroyed early on in, in their uh, circulation in the maternal uh, bloodstream. Uh, and we are left with, the, um, with pieces of that uh, uh, fetal genome. And it's on that basis of those pieces that we're able to look at ratios. And it's a very tight number, set of tight numbers that we're looking at. But again, uh, a woman who is ostensibly uh, chromosomally normal, who's carrying a fetus, uh, let's use chromosome 21, uh, with two copies of chromosome 21, uh, approximately 3.42% uh, of her uh, nucleic acid circulating is going to be 21 specific. If she is carrying a fetus uh, with trisomy 21, uh, that number jumps to about 3.78%, depending on whether it's a male or female fetus. Uh, it has been the ability to sequence, sequence more and sequence faster that has allowed us to have a reliable, consistent assessment that is able to dif differentiate uh, those two uh, rather similar numbers and do it in a way that gives us a, a, a feasible, uh, excellent screening program uh, as well as something that's economically viable. There are different approaches to look at this nucleic acid. There is the SNP-based approach. Um, please don't ask me which one is better. Uh, I will tell you clinically, there are little to no differences in the detection rates, in the sensitivities and specificities, the positive predictive values. Uh, there are some differences in turnaround time and failure rates. But for the most part, when we're looking at common chromosomal analyses, uh, both technologies provide us with, with a, a comparable uh, screening product. So all of this, uh, and I will tell you, we were the second uh, program uh, in the United States to offer such testing. This was in November of 2011. I will tell you that we were incredibly surprised by how quickly it was picked up. Uh, but it has been picked up and, and there have been obviously millions of tests done that have finally led uh, ACOG, Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, as well as uh, uh, the American College of Medical Genetics uh, to consider uh, cell-free nucleic acid analysis as a first-line screening option, underlying screening, uh, for all women, regardless of their a priori risk. Again, uh, the key recommendations of that uh, bulletin 226 is that first of all, NIPT is the screening option for all women, regardless of age or risk. Uh, second, it's the most sensitive and specific screening option for common aneuploidies. Uh, and, and again, this is being done to empower women uh, that uh, to make an informed decision about not just screening, but diagnostic testing. Now, 
it's probably this third recommendation that somewhat falls off the track, uh, both from the patient's wishes and desire to have a non-invasive or a minimally invasive uh, screening test that is being inferred to be sort of as good as an amnio or CVS when it's sort of apples and oranges. Uh, and at times that perception is pushed along by, by clinicians. Uh, I would dare say that's mostly not reproductive uh, endocrinologists or infertility specialists. Uh, it's usually generalists who, who just believe that the numbers that they see are comparable to amnios or CVSs. Uh, in fact, they're not. And it's probably the, uh, uh, the most important issue that I deal with in counseling patients about their screening results, both positive as well as negative. Uh, again, the issue here is positive predictive value. And you take a look here at the left. Uh, I, I ask this question when I'm giving a, uh, an in-person talk, which hasn't happened in 16 months, but one day that will happen again. Uh, and, and here's the deal. If we look at first trimester screening, which was a, a, an incredible improvement over just maternal serum analytes, uh, the positive predictive value for a 25-year-old at 12 weeks with first trimester screening is 2%. With NIPT, it's 76%. This is for trisomy 21. When we take a look at a 40-year-old woman who has a, a greater a priori risk, that first trimester screen is, again, somewhat better, but a positive predictive value of 23% versus 98%. And again, why is this important? Well, this is the basis for why this is a better screening test, a better screening algorithm. But it is not uh, equal uh, to all women. Uh, as you can see here, age in particular, which leads to changes in a priori risk, uh, alter uh, the ability to accurately predict either abnormality or normality. And again, this is the difference in positive predictive value at all maternal ages. So in addition to those fundamental issues, there were four other things that were brought uh, to bear with uh, Bulletin 226. And actually, I'm going to segue after this slide with the fifth issue. So first of all, NIPT can be performed in twin pregnancies. It's not entirely as accurate, but it still is considerably better than the serum analytes and ultrasound-based algorithms that we use. Um, for those women who get a no-call, uh, for whatever reason, that is invariably associated with a higher likelihood of some sort of aneuploidy. The only group of women for whom that's not true are those who are on Lovenox, uh, and we're still unsure exactly why uh, uh, those uh, anticoagulants lead to an increased risk for, for no-call rates. Um, this third issue on the right, on the upper level, is one that I greatly disagree with, uh, is that fetal fraction measurements are preferable. Uh, actually, they've never been shown to be of any benefit other than marketing for certain companies. Uh, but the American College of Medical Genetics and ACOG recommends that laboratories provide this for, uh, even though ultimately all that we're interested in is whether or not the prediction is correct or not. Uh, and uh, there are at least two companies that actually don't utilize fetal fraction, and they have some of the highest rates of, of accuracy. Finally, uh, multiple aneuploidy screening should not be used. Again, we don't, should not be evaluating screening tests with other screening tests. If you have a positive result with laboratory A, please don't send the specimen to laboratory B. If that comes back negative, it's not reassuring. The fifth issue, which is not in this, is that uh, NIPT for anything other than the common chromosome aneuploidies, 13, 18, 21, X and Y, are not currently uh, recommended. Although many companies, if you go to the next slide, 
uh, offer uh, screening for microdeletion, uh, deletion duplications. Uh, this is important just for this particular slide. If we look at women under the age of 28, the cumulative risk of having a fetus with one of these deletion duplication syndromes is actually greater than their risk for having a fetus affected with Down syndrome. So it, it makes a, a, a not inconsequential component. If we go to the next slide, uh, the major components of these deletion duplications are these, and the one that is the, the, the greatest frequency, probably not one in 4,000, but closer to one in 2,000 is 22Q deletions, the George, uh, that's a lecture unto itself, but again, cumulatively, we take a look at these common Dell dupes and they do uh, make up a, um, a considerable proportion. Why isn't, is it as of yet not recommended? We actually don't have good clinical verification studies. I'm not gonna even use the word validity because we've never really had real validity studies with this, uh, but we've had no uh, robust clinical verification studies and primarily because they're just so rare and you would need hundreds of thousands or millions of, of women to be followed uh, with diagnostic testing on the back end. And, and as you can imagine, that's just not gonna happen. So our current uses, current implication, fetal aneuploidies, including sex chromosome aneuploidies, uh, fetal gender screening, ostensibly for X-linked conditions, but mostly uh, for gender reveal parties and large forest fires in California. Uh, that is the, the, for the vast majority of women, that is the reason why they choose to have NIPT. Uh, and then uh, for those, uh, some clinicians and laboratories, deletion duplications. Future availability is somewhat here. Uh, we have already commercially available, although not recommended, uh, assays for single gene disorders, even autosomal dominant conditions, uh, obviously uh, a more expansive genomic assessment uh, for fetal karyotype and fetal genome are, are uh, available, but not readily uh, recommended. And again, all without uh, robust uh, clinical uh, support. So what is the future? The real future is in a sense this, in, in the cancer world, uh, looking as a, a more accurate marker for recurrence or potentially uh, screening or occurrence, uh, looking at particular proteins and other markers, being able to use this technology for non-reproductive diseases like Alzheimer's, diabetes, both for screening and diagnosis. In the IVF world, uh, this technology is in fact being used in some uh, places uh, to screen the, the fluid in which the embryos lie to look for a, a less invasive approach uh, to, uh, uh, to karyotypic screening uh, for these embryos. Uh, commercially available, not widely used. Again, not a whole lot of robust uh, information concerning accuracy. So what is our discussion today? Uh, this is actually first study was done here at Northwestern. One of our fellows, uh, Dana Kimmelman, uh, showed, which was uh, sort of somewhat obvious to most of us, that most patients who uh, undergo IVF with PGTA do not pursue diagnostic prenatal testing, even though it is something that's discussed with them. Uh, up in Canada, uh, it was stated that non-invasive prenatal testing can be considered for these pregnancies. So why are we discussing this? Well, for me, uh, this is something that, again, is somewhat of a product of misperception. You've already gone through IVF, you've gone through PGTA, you have had transferred, and forget about the mosaic embryo because PG, uh, NIPT has no role in the assessment of that particular pregnancy if it is successful and it continues. 
diagnostic testing is obviously the most, uh, is a critical part of that. But that being said, you have transferred a euploid embryo. Uh, and the reality is in doing so, you have made for a profoundly lower positive predictive value. You have profoundly reduced the likelihood of common aneuploidies of uncommon aneuploidies. Uh, you then get into the issue of the risk of common versus uncommon aneuploidies. You have a negative result for the common aneuploidies. What's the risk of there being an uncommon aneuploidy? Well, the uncommon aneuploidies are uncommon. Uh, again, mosaicism is not discussed. If you just click one more time. So for me, the issue is this. And for us, the issue is this. Are we dealing with an oasis or are we dealing with a mirage? Is it something that we're offering our patients uh, that has some real clinical meaning? Or is it something that is just going to make them feel better? And the last thing I'll say before we get into a, a, a better discussion, I think the question that we have to address is, is this in fact, in a sense, harmful if it is a mirage? Uh, is it something that is uh, encouraging women to undergo testing when in fact none is necessarily there? So uh, again, I thank you for the invitation to be here and I very much look forward to our discussion today. Thank you, Dr. Schulman. That was great. Um, I want to invite next Dr. Marie Werner to join the conversation. Dr. Werner is the Associate Director of the RMA Jefferson REI Fellowship Program. A few years ago, she published a study that investigated the clinically recognizable error rate after transfer of embryos screened with PGTA. It was actually this study that initiated our interest in the question that is at the core of the discussion today. Dr. Werner, wherever, whenever you're ready. Great, thank you so much for that. Very nice introduction, and I'm very excited to be here with everybody tonight. The purpose of the paper that I'm presenting today is really a nice segue um, to what was just presented. So what we looked at was the clinically recognizable error rate after the transfer of compre comprehensively chromosomally screened embryos, now called PGT for aneuploidy screening. Um, as already um, mentioned, PGTA can be very useful for our patients with IVF. Um, there is very good class one data that allows us to know that it increases implantation and delivery rates, lowers miscarriage rates, and allows us to transfer just one embryo at a time. So for us, it's widely utilized within our practice, and we, but we also know that there are limitations. And so some of the limitations could include things like errors and biology, like mosaicism, which was just very well discussed. Um, but there can be other limitations with any technique that we do, like technical errors and specimen processing, handling, amplification fidelity, depending on the platform that was utilized, or even at the point of data analysis. And so because we know not every screening test is perfect, hence it is a screening test, um, it is not absolute, um, it's also important to think about these limitations for our patients. Our question with this study was really to see what is the clinical precision at the time where we're using a platform called qPCR-based PGTA. And we were thinking when we're counseling our patients, what is the most impactful outcome for them? Per embryo, what could our chance be that we were wrong? Per transfer, when we're doing one at a time, and per ongoing gestation. And I think that the take-home message, the part that has been most impactful for patient counseling that came out of the study is, what is the risk that my patient that's currently pregnant is going to have an abnormal ongoing gestation? And we were able to answer some of these questions with this talk. Um, our design was that we included all um, 
all IVF facilities that were using our lab. Um, there was about 10 different facilities in total. We collected data from all euploid embryo transfers. So any patient within these centers that had a euploid embryo during the time period of the study were queried. We looked at things like total number of transfers, the total transfers resulting in a clinical pregnancy, um, the number without the establishment of pregnancy, and any pregnancy that was known to have an aneuploid gestation. And where possible, we would complete further analysis. Out of all of the 10 centers, we collected data from 3,168 euploid embryo transfers of 4,974 euploid blasts. This was still a time where um, double embryo transfer was occasionally performed. And within that subset of patients, um, there were 10 errors occurring in 10 separate pregnancies. And we calculated the CCS misdiagnosis rate by embryo transfer and ongoing gestation. So our data is presented here. Um, this is the first table from the paper where we looked at um, the different parameters listed on the left-hand side of your screen, total number of embryos that developed into gestational sacs, 62.1%. The embryos that progressed to delivery, 57.1%. And clinically evident gestational sacs that arrested in development and did not deliver. Um, we then took this data and we looked at the clinically recognizable error rate per embryo transferred. Um, and we found that in total, it was 0.21%, but in ongoing pregnancies, 0.1%. We then looked at the clinically recognizable error rate per transfer. So the number, the N is a little bit different here because in cases there were um, two embryos transferred. So again, we looked at the clinical pregnancy rate. Of course, it will be higher in the case of a two embryo transfer at 74.3%. Pregnancies that progressed to delivery, 69.1% and clinically evident sex that arrested in development and did not deliver. Um, again, then we looked at the clinically recognizable error rate per transfer in total for all of the transfers. Um, so the N being the 3,168, we have 0.32%, which is a very low rate, and in ongoing gestations, 0.13%. Um, and this is my favorite number to use in counseling our patients because when they're pregnant and they ask me, um, should I consider doing the NIPT screen? Should I do CVS, amniocentesis? Um, of course, the longitudinal studies may not be there to directly answer that question, but I can reassure them with this data. And again, these are just the numbers sort of broken down for everybody per transfer, per clinical pregnancy rate, and ongoing aneuploid gestations. These are very low rates of abnormalities and should reassure our patients that are electing to do PGTA. Um, those cases where there was a misdiagnosis, there were four out of those 10 cases where there could be further analysis of the process of conception, where we could actually take that material to our lab, all of which did show evidence of mosaicism. So while we can't evaluate the other cases, we can tell you what we found here. Um, and I think one of the other important limitations that are probably not on my slide here is that we, we cannot draw any conclusions from those pregnancies that we called euploid, or I should say those transfers and embryos that we said were euploid, but didn't actually implant. And so the, the jury would still be out on um, if there were any errors in that population, but in those patients that did result in a gestation, I think we can reassure our patients and counsel them based on this um, information that it's very low and 0.13% was what we saw in the study. So that's the information I wanted to share with everybody today. I hope this puts into context, um, some of which we were thinking about for Dr. Klimczak's study as well. Thank you, Dr. Warner. 
That's uh, a great introduction and and a very good review of your paper as well. I think that gave us, I think, the perfect background to go into our main presentation. It's a paper titled Interpretation of Non-Invasive Prenatal Testing Following in Vitro Fertilization and Pre-Implantation Genetic Testing for Aneuploidy. This will be presented by Dr. Amber Klimchak, who is a second year, almost third year fellow at uh, the RMA New Jersey Thomas Jefferson REI program. Dr. Klimchak, whenever you're ready. All right, thank you, Andres, for the great introductions. I'm really happy to be here tonight and excited to discuss this recent publication that we had in AJOG MFM. I think it's very relevant right now. And I kind of wanted to kick off this discussion with why we wanted to perform this study and why we were thinking that this is going to be really useful information for both clinicians and patients alike. So we realized that there were two things that were really happening. First of all, PGTA is just becoming increasingly used in IVF cycles across the country and world. And we see those numbers going up more and more. And that was one of the driving factors for this study. And then at the same time, the NIPT is becoming increasingly used. So it was not uncommon that patients were having these tests sequentially in the same pregnancies. And of course, we as IVF providers were seeing patients and getting calls where very rarely there was discordance in these two results. And when you go to the literature, there was nothing there for us to have any type of evidence-based guidelines on how to counsel our patients. Of course, um, we'll start off, and this was kind of discussed by Dr. Stolman. he gave a great introduction, but we had you know, enough sense to understand that our patient population that has undergone a euploid embryo transfer is presumably a lower risk population that is gonna go in and have an NIPT. So this is not the equivalent of testing the general population. So right off the bat, we knew that counseling for these patients was gonna be different. And of course, they're already high anxiety when they've had an abnormal test and they want to know what's going on and we want to put them in the right mindset and give them some reassurance. So we knew, of course, this is going to be an altered prevalence in our particular patient population. And just statistically, when you drop that prevalence in the population, there's an obvious change in the positive predictive value. We were able to identify just for general positive predictive value of NIPT in all types of patients for all of the um, aneuploidies, the common aneuploidies and sex chromosome aneuploidies, about 69%. So our hypothesis, of course, was that in our patient population, the positive predictive value was going to be lower. So essentially, we were looking for two pieces of information that we thought were going to be key to help counsel our patients that had these sequential tests done, one of which was the prevalence in our population, and the second was the positive predictive value. So of course, this was a retrospective study, and this was performed between 2014 and 2019, and this was all patients that had first undergone IVF utilizing PGTA in order to transfer a single euploid embryo, and then had a sequential NIPT test performed in early pregnancy. So we were able to identify 1,139 patients that had both those tests, and we got the results from them. Obviously, uh, 1,127 of those patients had normal NIPT. So the first piece of information that we have here is that 
it's very reassuring that PGTA is acting as we expect it to. It's um, giving us a larger population of normal NIPTs following the PGTA transfer. We did have four patients that had no-call NIPTs. And then importantly, we identified the eight abnormal NIPTs following PGTA, which gave us an overall prevalence in this population of patients of 0.7%. And so I wanted to pause and show you that in context with the general population. So like I said, the general population for overall, this is not just high risk patients or low risk patients. This was actually a pretty difficult number for us to find in the literature as Andres can attest to, because a lot of these studies that are out there, they were performed on patients that were high risk when they were first introducing the NIPT. And so it's a higher prevalence population and therefore these numbers are higher. So the we came across Gill et al that had a great estimate of about 1.2% of an abnormal positive, you know, abnormal NIPT in just a general population. So you can see clearly in our patient population of IVF PGTA euploid embryo transfers, we're dropping that prevalence already to you know, almost half. We're at 0.7%. So you can see it in context there with the general population. And then from there, we filtered through these results of the eight abnormal NIPT test. One patient did decline testing. So I will say, of course, these patients were all counseled appropriately in our opinion to undergo diagnostic testing via amniocentesis. And one of the eight patients did decline. They ultimately delivered a phenotypically normal patient. Um, six of the patients that underwent amniocentesis had normal karyotypes, meaning the abnormal NIPT was a false positive finding. But there was one patient that was identified on amniocentesis to have a Turner um, XO karyotype, and on our um, PGTA it was 46XX, and that was um, Turner's mosaicism in 80% of the cells. So you can see kind of where the um, issue was there. But overall, this read, led to our positive predictive value of 12.5%. So the conclusions of this study were, you know, first and foremost, an abnormal result on NIPT following PGTA is rare. So we saw from our over 1,100 patients that actually even getting an abnormal NIPT is a rare finding, which I think is reassuring. And when you're counseling patients, when they ask you, I've had PGTA, should I undergo prenatal testing? Yes, if you do have an abnormal test, it's rare, but there is still a possibility. So you should still undergo all prenatal testing. I think everyone's on the same page about that. If you encounter an abnormal NIPT, there is definitely utility in recommending invasive diagnostic testing. There was, we didn't find that it was impossible, you know, that this um, PGT was perfect in prediction. So there is the possibility that um, there was a real finding there and they should undergo invasive diagnostic testing. Our data you know, is some of the first out there, but of course our data is really reassuring that most of the time, if they do have an abnormal NIPT, it is a false, you know, false positive finding. And I think that that's another key point when patients come to you anxious, worried about an abnormal NIPT, hey, look, we recommend you undergo invasive diagnostic testing. Most of the time, we're going to find that this is a false positive, but still proceed with the testing. And so, you know, counseling, those are, those are really the key points for patients. And I think that 
this information is important to circulate and you know make sure everyone is on the same page about that's thank you so much dr klimchak i um want to turn it over for the discussion to dr emra Selly. he's the chief scientific officer here at evrma global and he's also a professor of OBGYN at yale university dr Selly, whenever you're ready thank you andres as I introduce our discussing, I would like to remind the audience uh, to type uh, their questions, please. Uh, these could be directed at the presenters or could be general questions for the panel. Uh, we will be moderating them and getting them to our panelists so they can be answered. And speaking of our panelists, let me introduce them. We, in this specific discussion, we want to include many different viewpoints. Uh, so we invite guests that could give us perspectives on genetics, maternal fetal medicine, REI, genetics of PGTA, as well as statistics. Talking about statistics, um, Dr. George Patonakis is the Medical Director of Reproductive Medicine Associates of Florida and an Assistant Professor in the Department of OBGYN at the University of Central Florida. And I wanna add that uh, George, in addition to being a very competent physician, he holds a PhD in engineering and is an extremely competent statistician. We also have Dr. Richard Scott, who needs no introduction. As you know, he's the founding partner of RMA. He is the director of Division of Reproductive Endocrinology at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School of Rutgers University. And he is the director of the Jefferson University RMA REI uh, Fellowship Program. Dr. Scott has more than 300 publications and his main focus of research in at least in the last decade or so has been pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And last but definitely not least, Dr. Dagan Wells, who is a professor at Oxford University in UK, and the director of Juno Genetics. Dr. Wells is an expert on pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and he contributed significantly to the advancement of the field, and his uh, publication record uh, parallels that of Dr. Scott's, although maybe a little behind. And of course, uh, we are joined by our presenters, Dr. Schulman, Dr. Werner, and Dr. Klimsak. Thank you all for joining us. My first question is to Dr. Patanakis, uh, because I really want to hammer this down and I really want to share undisputable uh, learning points in this uh, journal club. George, can you please educate us? Although it's been mentioned, what is the relationship between prevalence and positive predictive value? And how does this relationship apply to the findings of the study presented by Amber? Thank you very much for the introduction and for having me here on the panel. Uh, these were uh, both great great papers that have a tremendous clinical impact to uh, certainly what I do every day uh, with a lot of the PGTA uh, testing. So to get to the point of the positive predictive value, which has come up numerous times during the uh, discussion, you have to take a step back and kind of uh, go through all the different terms that are used for um, how, how tests are evaluated. Uh, many times you'll look at the specificity and sensitivity of a test. With those two, the uh, denominator that you're looking at is either the number of patients that actually have the disease, which is for the sensitivity, or the number of the patients that don't have the disease, which is for the uh, specificity. When you look at positive predictive value, though, the denominator is the total number of times that test is positive, whether or not the patient has the disease. So that's where the uh, difference here comes in. But from a clinical standpoint, when you have somebody sitting in front of you, uh, this is 
many times a much more practical way to uh, look at the test because it includes the so-called pretest probability, which is essentially what we're talking about with the prevalence because that will modify what the pretest probability is. Now you can go through and you can derive the actual the, the full associate the um, the uh, formula for uh, how. Uh, prevalence plays into positive predictive value, and basically, you you get this messy fraction uh, with it. Uh, but essentially, for positive predictive value, uh, it's the prevalence times some other factor of sensitivity over uh, the sensitivity minus the uh, one minus the specificity and such. It, there's no need to actually display it because uh, it's it's pointless. We should look at it from a conceptual standpoint, which makes more sense. And the way to look at this from a conceptual standpoint and to really understand how the uh, positive predictive value is influenced by uh, prevalence is you look at the extremes. So let's say that the prevalence of the disease in the population you're testing is 100%. Every single uh, patient has the uh, disease. Well, what happens to the positive predictive value, which is the total uh, number of true positives over the total times the test is positive? Well, if every single patient has a disease, anytime the test is positive, it's going to be a true positive. Therefore, the positive predictive value will always be 100%. In that case, it doesn't matter what the accuracy of the test is because it, it can be terrible. But anytime that test is positive, one out of a million times, it's going to be positive and the positive predictive value is 100%. So that's one case of the extreme. Now look at the other uh, extreme, which is let's say absolutely no patients have the disease ever in the population that you're testing. What will happen is there'll never be a true positive for the test. Therefore, anytime that the test is positive, erroneously, it's going to be a false positive, and the positive predictive value goes to 0%. So those are the two extremes of how the uh, prevalence can affect the positive predictive value of uh, the test. But basically, what the positive predictive value does on this day-to-day -day basis is it's changing the pretest probability that the person sitting in front of you actually has a disease, and that's based on the prevalence of the disease. This was a very nicely put explanation. And I know uh, mm -hmm. Lee Schulman introduced the idea in his talk, but I thought for, for those of us who are like me, not necessarily an expert in this, it will be helpful and it was. So based on what you're saying, are we okay to conclude that it's not surprising what Amber is reporting? Any thoughts from anybody? I mean, are we surprised about the findings of this paper at all? What do you think, Lee? No. I mean. No, no, right. no I, I'm not surprised. And, and to be honest, uh, I would have predicted that if we were going to find an aneuploidy in this situation, it was going to likely be a, a 45x, likely a mosaic, a, a post-psychotic event, uh, not calling into question the accuracy of the PGTA, but what happened afterwards. So uh, that is going to happen. Uh, it, it is the source of most of the, if we look outside of uh, IVF PGT, it's the source of most erroneous or inaccurate positive results in the general OB population, which is X and Y aneuploidy. Um, so uh, I, am, I am, was not surprised. First of all, it was a great study. Um, thank you, Amber. Um, not surprised. Uh, and, and I still think uh, at some point, whether today or, or at some point, we need to think whether or not uh, NIPT in some sense is harmful. Uh, is it uh, 
is it leading people to have unnecessary diagnostic testing? Um, and that's not a question necessarily for any of us in solitude to answer, but I think it's a question that needs to be asked. Perfect. Thank you. I mean, I want to ask Dr. Scott his overall opinion, but there's also a question from the audience that I want to put there. In, in addition to your thoughts, the question is, are there any data about NIPT results following the transfer of mosaic embryos? But Marie Werner, Marie, you could also comment on this, but let's listen to Dr. Scott first. Go ahead, Dr. Scott. So uh, there are some, to answer the question from the audience, uh, we now transferred between uh, Marie Werner's original study uh, and then a subsequent study by Dr. Ashley Teagues, uh, as well as uh, patients who have elected to not be told if they have mosaicism. Uh, we now have about 300 of those um, that have led to gestations. And, and uh, almost all of those um, um, have been offered in IPT. I think the, the, the rate has been about 50%. Don't hold me to that number because I haven't looked at it for a while. It was about 50% last I looked and all had normal NIPT results. I, I think Dr. Schulman um, actually stated, when you do these kinds of studies, you're gonna need monster numbers. I mean, you're gonna need such large sample sizes that I, I'm not sure, uh, even in a, a PGT lab uh, like the FEC where they're doing 30 or 40,000 embryos a year, I, I'm still not sure it wouldn't take us you know, the rest of Amber's career to get enough numbers. So we're gonna, uh, my career's definitely not long enough. So. Uh, it, it will take a lot to, to get those data. Um, so, but for now, we have not, we've not found anything uh, differently in those, but the end is just too small to be meaningful. I, I will mention just, uh, I wanna throw a, a, a wrench in the works. Based on our clinical experience uh, uh, at, the, at the FEC lab, and I'd be very interested in data, and uh, Wells has had this experience with his laboratories. Um, but one of the, one of the uh, concerns that has been surfaced in the last year or two is that when you're doing frozen embryo transfers, uh, that the risk for pregnancy-induced hypertension, preeclampsia, low birth weight may be a little higher, not much, but a little higher than in natural cycles. Um, Bruce Shapiro, I think, has taught us all uh, with good class one data, more than a decade old now, that cryocycles have better outcomes than fresh transfers. And I find his data very compelling. I think those are several contributions from his group in Las Vegas. But the net result of that is, is that we're doing a fair number of natural cycle transfers now. Um, and of the misdiagnoses that we've had uh, in the last year or so, a very substantial proportion, not quite, but almost half, have been in natural cycles. And you're talking about a rare event, right? They're just a few, because it's very rare. But uh, the couples actually conceived uh, in the natural cycle, and the pregnancy was not from the IVF embryo. Uh, in the way we do PGT, we get, we get SNPs, so we can actually do uh, very definitive genetic identification. If I miss anything, they can jump in and correct me in a moment, but we, we get definitive identification. So you can see that, yes, the embryo is from mom and dad, but it was none of the IVF embryos. And so we, we recommend, uh, that's another reason at least potentially to think about it, because some of these errors are legitimate errors, but they're not, they're not from PG or TA. So, that's going to confound, uh, confound this as well. Uh, above and beyond that, uh, our, our patient population wants to be definitive. I absolutely share Dr. Shulman's concerns that uh, when you screen an extremely low-risk population, which this now becomes, that we stand to do more, more uh, harm than good. Um, and obviously, we're going to need bigger numbers to 
to get to the bottom of that to see if that's true or not. I'm not saying we have the data to conclude anything. For now, we continue to encourage our patients to do uh, to do non-invasive uh, non-invasive screening. Uh, but I think that there's uh, a lot of data that are going to be needed to really get to the bottom of that question. Hopefully, in the near future. Uh, we are getting pretty good questions, so I'm going to go into them. Uh, and one of them, uh, and I would like to direct this to Dagan. Please, uh, Dagan, tell your opinions in general, but also uh, the question is, what about non-invasive PGTA? Uh, should we recommend NIPD for those cases? Yes, Dagan, you're stuck with the, you, you have this. <laughs> uh, well, okay, I'll, I'll respond to that question first. I think if you're doing non-invasive PGTA, you should absolutely do some kind of follow-up because at the moment, uh, personally, I'm not really convinced very much by the accuracies of, of those methodologies. Um, they really are no substitute for trifecterm biopsy at the moment. Um, so yes, I would probably do an IPT if I was uh, having to yes. go down that route. Um, uh, in general, I mean, again, I would say congratulations to Amber and the other uh, authors. I think this is a very novel and valuable perspective on NIPT uh, following pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy and uh, transfer of euploid embryos. I think that's really, uh, it has been very interesting. Um, I guess, you know, I, I work in the PGT field mostly, although our lab does do NIPT as well. So I kind of always find myself going back to that, uh, to looking at things from that perspective myself. And it does, it is of interest to me, I think, how consistent the results are with what we might expect from PGTA, what we might expect that to deliver to patients. And you've gone from a situation where maybe in the general population, 1.2% of patients are having a positive NIPT, straight away you're almost halving that down to 0.7% after having done a euploid embryo transfer after PGTA. Then when you look at those in more detail, it's uh, you know, only one in eight, only 12.5% of those, which is actually genuinely abnormal. And even then it's only mosaic. So you're, you're have, you have a sort of, uh, I guess, a, a PGTA um, followed by an aneuploidy rate of uh, one in a thousand. And uh, so I think that's what that tells me is that PGTA is doing a remarkable job in actually um, reducing the risks of uh, aneuploid pregnancy. Um, so I think that's very reassuring for us on the PGTA world, uh, as well as giving this very interesting insight into how useful or perhaps less useful uh, NIPT is um, in the context uh, of having had a euploid embryo transfer. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's very striking to me just uh, how rapidly NIPT was adopted, and, and Lee mentioned that at the beginning, that this was a, a, a great clinical innovation, innovation that proceeded into clinical testing very rapidly, unusually rapidly for a genetic uh, test. Um, and that not that different to the rather fraught history that PGTA has had? And yet I think this data is very supportive of that particular methodology. Um, I'd be very interested to hear from the authors of the paper, Amber and, and the others, really whether you think that really what this is telling you is purely something that is of value for uh, patient counseling or whether you would consider any change to clinical pathways uh, as a result of uh, what you've discovered here. I, 
I think Dr. Scott was also raising his uh, electronic hand. So if you want to <laughs> go ahead. So I actually had a question for, for Dr. Shulman. Um, uh, is somebody who has just incredible expertise in, and it was a wonderful talk. What, what do you think we should we be telling our patients not to do uh, non invasive uh, prenatal screening testing? Uh, it, it, it makes us nervous because we don't, we, we love our technologies that we have, but we're not, we're not completely confident uh, in them, and we want to make sure the patient gets good care. The reality is, is that even in a low risk, uh, obviously uh, all the women that you see uh, are in a high risk for a variety of reasons. These are pregnancies that have uh, been achieved uh, through uh, ways other than uh, natural conception, and they are inherently at increased risk for, again, a variety of reasons. Um, even in our low risk population, uh, it is clear that, again, uh, this is putting the emphasis on this being a screening test. Uh, this is adjusting risk. Uh, and, and the question is, what is the level of risk? Uh, yes, this may be the result of a 40-year-old egg and a 60-year-old sperm, but the reality is, is that's not the risk in this embryo that has been transferred, that has been tested and transferred. So, and again, it, it's none of our jobs, my or, or yours, to tell people what to do, but I think it's to, I think what Amber and uh, what Marie have presented here uh, is, it shows exactly that if we are in the unlikely scenario that we, you're going to have a positive result, most likely that result is not going to be uh, affirmed which is not true for in that low-risk population for any of those five common aneuploidies. And if, if you really want to, to throw a, uh, a grenade in the middle of this, uh, what about the situation they say, well, let's just get, and I'm going to use a brand name here, and I, well, I'm not going to use a brand name. Why don't we just get a genome screen, all right? Good luck with that. That, that is truly just throwing a, a hand grenade in the middle of this discussion because the positive results, who the heck knows? You know, are, are they heritable? Are they de novo? Are they post-zygotic? Uh, unknown. Uh, I will say this, there is somewhat of a way out or at least somewhat of a way out. Uh, and that is since CVS wouldn't be done till 10 plus weeks, uh, in the absence of there being ultrasound findings, uh, you know, the like, I, I would love to know in that one case, if possible, was there a big nuchal? Was there some finding suggestive of, of 45X, mosaicism, et cetera? My guess is not. Uh, but in the absence of ultrasound findings, uh, you know, the likelihood that NIPT is going to lead to the diagnosis of an aneuploid state, uh, I'll use your numbers, is less than one in a thousand. Perfect. Uh, I would like to continue with Dagan's question and maybe ask Marie Werner and George Patanakis, uh, like before these two studies and after, how is your practices changing? I, I think Marie mentioned some numbers she's uh, quoting to her patients. So like in more easier terms, like what do you tell them? Yeah, so I think with, um, with these studies, I think we can confidently tell patients when they're pregnant, um, when they ask you that question of how likely is it that that this is gonna be an abnormal pregnancy, how much do I have to worry? I say less than 1% in clinical practice. I think starting to use um, fractions of decimal points can be a little bit challenging for our patients. But I think giving them that reassurance can be really helpful. 
Um, they'll always ask about the subsequent tests like we were talking about here, the NIPT, the amniocentesis. Um, typically what my counseling has been is the NIPT is non-invasive, go ahead and do it. Um, I wouldn't do an amniocentesis or a CVS as a first step. I would only do that if there was abnormal ultrasound findings as was suggested, or if the NIPT was abnormal, because I don't think we have um, the ground to stand on yet to tell them not to do the NIPT test, especially when our patients are have gone through so much to get to this point. Cool. How about you, George? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I agree with uh, Dr. Werner uh, about this. That's how we uh, counsel the uh, patients uh, here. Uh, basically, what it comes down to is a patient to uh, tolerance for for risk. I like to think about it in in terms of um, when you have, let's say, like for like hurricane insurance. If, if you think that you're gonna be that one in a thousand that's gonna get hit and your house is gonna get destroyed, you're gonna get a low deductible. If you're like, ah, probably nothing will happen, but in case there's a catastrophe, I'm, I'm gonna get it, you're, you're gonna get a high deductible. Um, and it's different for, for everybody. So if 0.1%, if 0.2% uh, is too much for, for somebody, then they need to do the testing. But then I you know, tell them, listen, if this comes back positive, chances are it's wrong. So you need to confirm it. Don't don't get too too anxious about it quite yet, you know, because chances are that what we've done already is going to be more accurate, except in the cases where there was natural conception. I mean, that's that that has happened, and I see that, and, and that's something that a lot of the general OBGYNs don't understand that 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 that's possible. So you know, like, well, you did because they'll tell patients you did the testing. There's no way that this pregnancy can be abnormal or anything like that. No, there there actually is because you you may have gotten pregnant from not the embryo I transferred, but one that you. <laughs> I kind of made yourself. So, um, so, but I think for right now too, uh, we still will recommend it, but um, you have to take it with a grain of salt, uh, given the positive predictive value and nobody should act on that result or get too upset about it if it comes back as positive, because it's probably wrong. Fair enough. Fair enough. And by the way, George lives in Florida, hence the uh, hurricane <laughs> analogy, I guess. <laughs> Dr. Scott, again, please go ahead. I apologize for picking on Dr. Shulman, but I it's a treat to have him here to, to, to get, get some good information. So, uh, you know, across the board, uh, if somebody comes back and you have any index of suspicion, you know, uh, or the patient is just anxious, um, at some of the uh, international PGT meetings, uh, without data, so there's no data, but people have got up and said that maybe we should be doing amnios, not CVSs, because confined placental mosaicism may not be maybe a problem, but not necessarily an indication for termination of that pregnancy. Not that it doesn't bring issues, please, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but they might be more inclined um, to, uh, to maintain the pregnancy uh, if in fact the amnio where you're, you're dealing with fetal cells uh, returns completely normal. Do you, do you have an opinion on CDS or amnio to further explore this? I'm gonna take you down perhaps a surprising rabbit hole with the answer to your question. You'll probably expect me to say CVS is as accurate as amniocentesis, and I actually uh, agree with that, except, and here's the caveat. Uh, when we're dealing with, and I mentioned this before, NIPT results showing an increased risk for X and Y aneuploidy, in particular 45X. Uh, we have actually in the last two years, uh, as much as this goes against everything that we believe in, uh, when somebody comes in, for whatever, you know, whatever risk, with a positive NIPT for X or Y aneuploidy and a normal ultrasound, 
we defer them to a 15-week amnio, primarily because of a variety of placental issues. Not for 21, not for 18, not for 13, not for deletion duplications that, that we don't screen, but get referred in for those positives. But sex chromosome aneuploidy, we have, I don't wanna say we've been burned. We've had those several cases of mosaicism on there and ultimately going to an amniocentesis to, to properly assess. Um, and, and again, much in the same way of Amber's pre presented case of the, of the affirmed uh, positive NIPT, um, again, it does not call into question the PGTA process or, or laboratory or anything to that effect. There are known biological processes that affect that transferred embryo that have nothing to do with the analysis that was done on the embryo. Um, so, uh, you know, and the, the other thing, not to get into it here, but it's when we're dealing with mosaicism, most of the time that mosaicism is for those uncommon aneuploidies. You've got a 30% trisomy 11 and all that. So if that, fe if that fetus is continuing, uh, you know, it is almost invariably going to be a normal NIPT because you're not looking for chromosome 11 abnormalities. And honestly, chromosome 11 abnormalities are going to come with either an early demise, which you'll find on POCs, or with profound uh, uh, ultrasound uh, aberrations. I have two more questions from the audience that I want to go over. And the first one goes to Amber Klimczak. <laughs> Amber was too comfortable there. All right. So this... Um, Questions about the paper and a specific aspect of the paper where uh, we wrote that the patients who had positive NIPD tended to have lower enteral follicle counts and fewer oocytes retrieved. Uh, do you think they should be treated differently in their further analysis or NIPD usage or invasive further testing? People who have lower oocyte count versus not. Uh, I don't. Um, so you're saying, should we counsel them to proceed with prenatal testing in a different way than how we counsel other patients based on their low antral follicle count? No, I mean, in, in actuality, we counsel all of our patients that they should be proceeding with prenatal testing. And then subsequently, if there's something found to proceed with invasive diagnostic testing. So I don't think when you're looking at them at this, that stage, or even looking back to see, oh, this is a patient that had a low antral follicle count, I would really encourage them to seek prenatal screening. I don't think that's a route that we recommend. Perfect. I have uh, another question that I want to pose to Lee Schulman and Dagan, uh, please. Um, the question is, do you agree that patients who conceive via IVF and PGTA may benefit more from whole genome NIPT than targeted, given that they may have a high risk for CNV than a trisomy? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, this is a long question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you want me to read it again? <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah. It, of course, NIPT is now available looking at the copy number of all the chromosomes. And I, I think, yeah, when, when we do that, we do see some uh, unusual, quite exotic aneuploidies come up every now and again, um, maybe less often than we see other things like segmental abnormalities. We've picked up quite a number of uh, previously unknown translocation carriers through that route. Um, so the, these things do have potential value uh, above and beyond uh, what you get for the usual 13, 18, 21 X and Y screening. Um, but it, it really, I think in this particular context, it's an interesting question in terms of what's already been touched upon. 
the potential transfer of mosaic embryos that have some of these unusual uh, aneuploidies. Now, I think the likelihood is that we wouldn't tend to see too many of these, at least not ones that would persist uh, in pregnancy without there being significant ultrasound findings already, just as Lee already said. So whether we would really discover anything very much by doing this, um, I think is a bit of an open question, but um, probably it wouldn't give us a, a much greater insight. Uh, it would be interesting from, from a purely um, scientific perspective though, uh, just to see if we can see any traces of these mosaic abnormalities that we see in trifecular and biopsies, I suspect we probably wouldn't. You know, I, I'll answer the question this way. Today, uh, I would uh, I would encourage not to do it and not to do a more expansive assessment. That answer will likely change in two, three, four years. Uh, so that's going to force you to invite me back at that point to, <laughs> to do round two. Uh, but I just think the the lack of robust information uh, with these expanded NIPTs is just getting into a far greater morass than we're discussing here today with well-delineated uh, detection rates of the common aneuploidies. Right. Well, uh, I think uh, there's a few more questions, but we will answer to them through email. We came to the end of our time. I would like to thank all the discussants and uh, it was very informative for me. And I wanna pass it to Andreas to close. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Shelley. I agree. It was fantastic. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming to the to the Journal Club online live. Um, it will also be available on our podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. Just look up FertilityPod and it'll be right there. And on Monday, it'll be also on our website at ev-rmainnovation.com. Aside from that, thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, we, really, we really appreciated having you here. I think it was a, a great talk. Thank you. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Bye.